Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Luke Stutters. Hello. Valentino Stoll. Hey, yo. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest. It's DHH. David, do you want to say hi? Hey, everyone. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So uh, I think everybody probably knows who you are, but is there anything new going on that you want to call out or anything you want us to know about before we get going on Prop Shaft? Yeah, there's so many new things. I mean, that's the exciting moment, I think, right now in Rails that after not doing anything on the front end for several years, suddenly it all comes down at once. And we have everything from hotwire to how we're processing things to ESM to this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a ton of stuff to tackle, but I think PropShaft is a great way to go about it because it leads to all these other discussions. And it's a topic that I haven't haven't actually talked that much about, even though I put a fair amount of work into this. And it's almost more of like a Rails 8 kind of topic. And it feels almost premature to talk about Rails 8 when we only just shipped Rails 7 about five minutes ago. But that's that's the excitement, man. That's the excitement that we already got the Rails 8 plans kind of uh, out in the horizon and looking at the path and all the paths we've been paving with Rails 7 just leads to really interesting places in a way that I haven't been this excited about in a very long time when it comes to Rails. Having gone through the upgrade, starting with a Rails 4 application, upgrading it all the way through to Rails 5, introducing Webpacker, getting rid of CoffeeScript and all that stuff, and then introducing Active Jobs and Action Cable, and then with Rails 6, Active Storage and all that stuff, migrating everything from Carrier Wave over to Active Storage, and then with Rails 7, with JS Bundling and CS Bundling, completely removing Webpacker from my workflow. It's been quite the journey, and I'm fully on Rail 7 with JS bundling, Turbo, Hotwire, completely you know, into that entire framework. And one thing I must say about it is that it's amazing. It's almost forcing you to write cleaner code because with Hotwire, I'm basically replacing all that UJS stuff where I had it sprinkled all over the application, and now I'm creating small controllers that are very easily testable that can interact with Hotwire. And I found that the JavaScript, the backend Rails side of things is just so much cleaner. And so I think PropShaft is the one element that's still missing from this full transition. And I'm really interested to see 
you know, just, I guess, a few high level questions, give a high level overview of sprockets and why prop shaft is a suitable and progressive replacement for that. Yeah. So I think what's really neat is that all these fundamentals improvements that have happened in the web ecosystem that are not really they're not to Rails credit. Rails simply showed up and saw that, oh, we now have modern JavaScript running natively in the browsers. We don't have to transpile anymore. You can write ES6 and you can take advantage of 98% of all the good stuff that we have in JavaScript without doing anything. You can just run it straight in the browser. Okay, that's step one. Step two, ESM, these ESM modules that we no longer need a transpilation step to uh, have a package management system, it can run directly in the browser too. Oh, now there's another thing that kind of disappeared. HTTP2, the fact that it is just as fast, and in many cases faster, to send 10 individual files than it is to send one bundled file, because that bundled file will expire its cache 10 times as often. So you have these three fundamental improvements that have paved the way for Rails 7. And the good thing about those things is like they it's a gift that keeps giving. It's sort of like this uh, cascade of simplification that's rolling through everything that we do. And I think we've only sort of started to scratch the surface of where that can take us. But the next step that seemed obvious for me was to look at our asset pipeline. This asset pipeline with Sprockets was created in late 2009, I think, was when we first started working on it. And then 2010, I think, was when it premiered. It was built for a different time. It was built for a time where we barely had a functional JavaScript ecosystem that could use sort of modern script. It was built for a time of CoffeeScript, which I kind of felt like was this call of desperation. Like, why does JavaScript have to suck this much? Can we just make it not suck <laughs> this much? So CoffeeScript, right? Like it's kind of this rebellious movement to do something around the fact that we have to write JavaScript, but it doesn't, it shouldn't have to be this painful. And then HTTP 1, the fact that we used to do all of these tricks. I don't know if you remember, but like browsers used to have, what was it, four connections you could open. And if you stressed out those four connections, everything else would just wait. So we would push images into sprites and then mm -hmm. reference them with CSS coordinates such that we wouldn't overload the pipe. And there's just all this weirdness. That was also, of course, the whole thing. Sprocket's main thing was that it could produce a bundle. It could take 100 files and turn it into one file. So all of these concerns and issues were problems that Sprockets had to solve itself because there was no other solution in 2009. There wasn't, was barely a JavaScript uh, sort of ecosystem to do it for us. The, the integration with Rails was years off into the future. And now we're looking at a, an environment where none of those things are true. Almost none of the problems that Sprockets was put in the world to solve still exist. So we're left with this weird scenario where Sprockets solves about 12 different problems at various levels of let's say, sort of competence. I mean, it, it did a bunch of things like compressions and transpilation. It tried to do source maps. It tried to do, it tried to do everything that the JavaScript community slowly sort of built up and got good at. And then finally now that we can get natively in the browsers. So it just felt to me when I started looking at Sprockets, I, I had to fix something for 
digesting. If you were producing a bundle through Webpack or one of the other JavaScript bundlers and you didn't want it kind of double stamped, you wanted to reference something, I think was what it was. And I tried to dive into the Sprockets code base to fix it. And I opened it up and I went like, holy, it's been a while. Jesus, this is in not great shape. It felt like a collection of hacks upon hacks some that were abandoned like seven years ago, some that have kind of been worked on a little bit. And the whole code base just felt like, I mean, why do we have this huge thing when we now have like two of the problems or three of the problems when we used to have 15? This doesn't feel right. There's just something aesthetically offensive to me about carrying around sort of a, a bag of tools that was created for a set of problems that were 10 years old. And now when I have to go in and update it, it feels like I'm in the jungle. And, and clearly it feels like that for other people too, because Sprockets, despite being such an integral part of the Ruby on Rails setup, has attracted very little sort of contributions. There's been people who've come in and out of it, but like essentially right now it's floating a little bit without any active uh, maintenance and active attention. And I think part of it is just like, it's not a nice place to work anymore because it is sort of all these other things. So I thought, okay, what do we actually need? 2022, what do we need? What do we need from an asset pipeline today? Well, we actually don't need very much. We need a load path. We need a digesting system such that we can do this long expiry setup by stamping the files with a hash such that you can set that expiry to, to far future. And basically it, I mean, there's a little bit with to do the digest stamping. You need to do a little bit of processing on some files. Like if you're referencing URLs, for example, inside a CSS file, you need those URLs to be digest stamped as well. But that's it. I mean, those are basically three things. And okay, throw in a development server that loud live reloads these things versus uh, relying on, on a static compilation and you're done. And I thought, you know what? I think I can write this in a weekend. And that was basically what I set out to do as a spike at first. How far can I get in a weekend? Can I solve like majority of the problems we're now facing that we're using this monstrosity of sprockets to deal with in a weekend. And I got far enough in that spike over the course of a weekend that I thought, I mean, I didn't get all the way there, of course. Everyone, every developer ever thinks that they can rewrite everything in a weekend. And then they're disabused <laughs> of that notion when it's Sunday afternoon and like there's still a lot left. But I got far enough that Prop Shop suddenly felt like, oh, this could be real. Like how much further, what, how much more do I have to work on this before we can use it at, at hey? for example. And I was like, that is not a far path. So I, I, I reached out to a couple of people who had been um, interested in working with some of these problems with uh, Sprockets, Brino in, in particular, and just asked like, hey, is anyone interested in helping with this? And, and Brino jumped in right away and started working on it. And I think in, I don't know, a couple of weeks after that initial one week spike, he was running it in production. And I was like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. We're now solving such a small portion of the problem that it's not a hard problem anymore. You look at the code base. I mean, I would encourage anyone, go to rail slash prop shaft and read through the code. It's all in lip. And there are, let's see here. There's like 10 files. And most of those files are quite short. You can absolutely read through the whole thing in like half an hour and understand what's going on. 
I would challenge anyone, even if they had eight hours, to read through the Sprockets code base and understand what's going on. I still don't fully understand what's going on in the Sprockets uh, code base most of the time. But you look at prop shaft and you see it's just such a small surface area compared to what it was. And now it's giving us it's giving on all these things that we need. Now, what was interesting was that Brino was able to put this in produ- to production very quickly. I think they had already jumped on JS bundling and CSS bundling. So they had already the, all the transpiling and whatever bundling that they needed, they got from those two sources. But with Hey, I had gone for the full import map, default, Rails, vanilla setup. But I also have a bunch of designers at Basecamp who wants to use SaaS. And that's, of course, we had SaaS kind of for free at with Sprockets, although that version of SaaS has been essentially discontinued for like three years ago or something like that. And you'll get all these warnings. Oh, SaaS Rails is no longer supported. Da, 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 da. And I thought like, oh, man, this is really annoying. I feel like we're so close to be able to use prop shaft in Anchor on a real project, which then spilled out these other wonderful improvements. When I got involved with the Tailwind stuff, I kind of got involved just because I was curious, in part because I was thinking like, you know what, if I had to write something from scratch, me as a programmer, I would use Tailwind. I'm not a CSS wizard master. Tailwind is it just totally fits my brain. I, I really liked Adam's way of explaining why the, the standard ways didn't work, whatever. I was just interested. I thought this, this is a fascinating thing. So I made first this um, gem called Tailwind CSS Rails, which kind of tried to build the, the Tailwind compiler and compressor in Ruby. And like, yeah, kind of sort of 80% there sort of worked. But when we then got to this point with, with PropShaft, there was no interface. I could not build Tailwind. Tailwind CSS-Rails was built for Sprockets. It was built with a compressor and all these other things that Sprockets made not available. And now that that wasn't possible anymore. So that led to a discussion with Adam, uh, especially since Tailwind 3 was coming up, where they're going with this JIT compiler, and it's really just, you got to run Node. And, and part of my mission for this whole Rails 7 thing was like, do you know what? Can I get Node out of my life? I would be very happy if Node was a real part of my life. Now, what's fascinating, of course, is that I, I ended up then diving really deep into the Node world to, to create CSS bundling and JS bundling and that whole path. And I'm really happy that that's there. And for the people who, who are not sort of sort of antagonistic or, or have a, for anyone who has a loving relationship with Node, there is a wonderful path for Rails 7 for them to use N- Node and integrate that with their Rails app that was even better than what we had before. But my personal interest was to get Node out. So uh, Tailwind CSS was, was moving to this Node world, and I was basically begging Adam, please give us a way to use Tailwind without all of that. And we went back and forth. Oh, maybe you can make a, a cloud compiler thing. Maybe you can do this thing. And it was like, finally, they came up with, I think they already had the spike, but... I really just besieged Adam to 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 do something about it, make a standalone executable. So Tailwind CSS3 comes as a standalone executable, no dependencies, like really old school static linking, basically smash node and all the other stuff into a single box so you don't need any of the dependencies. And that allowed me to wrap that with Tailwind CSS-Rails. So now suddenly you could use Tailwind without having sprockets, because it was a standalone compiler, and you got to use the latest version of Tailwind 3, win. Well, sort of, it was a win in the conceptual sense. It was still not a win for, hey, hey doesn't use um, Tailwind. 
we have designers and, and they want to use CSS directly, but they want to use it with SaaS. And then I thought like, you know what, can't we extend it to that? And I realized the SaaS people had already done the work. SaaS is also available as a Dart SaaS standalone executable um, that I could wrap in the same way that Tailwind-Rails was wrapping um, the Tailwind uh, standalone. Now we could have Dart SaaS-Rails. That gave us a standalone executable. That gave us a path to do all the transpiling of the SaaS into CSS. That gave us a path to use PropShaft in production. Because again, Sprockets no longer need it because we didn't need Sprockets approach to the SaaS compilation. Voila. And now we're running PropShaft in production with Hay on import maps using SaaS, using all the latest stuff. And I'm like, this is freaking great. And that was what I think really gave me the sort of ambition that this feels this feels plausible. Because what's funny about uh, both with Rails 7 and now with Rails 8, a lot of times there was kind of like an inkling of an idea. What if you could use import maps? Man, if you could use import maps, you could get away from transpilers, you could get away from bundlers. That'd be cool. But import maps feel like, are they there? Could we really make it a default? Is it far enough along? Is all these things sort of, in production, and this is something you just have to prove. And you prove it by making it real, by putting a major app into production with. So that's what we did with Hay. And now that we've done the same with Hay for PropShaft, I feel so much more confident thinking, this can be a real answer, and we can go through them, as it always is, a little bit of a painful transition, perhaps, going from Sprockets, something Rails has been tied integrally to for 10 years, and all sorts of stuff has been built on top of it. How do we get from Sprockets to PropShaft is sort of a question mark in part, but it's a much smaller question mark today than it was like even four months ago. So I know one of the questions that I have, because I've worked on legacy apps pretty much my entire career, and I talk to a lot of people who do. And... I'm even talking with somebody right now who is like, well, I know I've got to upgrade from Rails 5. I'm not ready to jump on the Webpacker train. Like, yet, you know, is Sprocket still going to support me? Which it still does in Rails 6. But, uh, you know, they're kind of panicking about the future, right? And I literally just finished this past week upgrading app from Rails 5 to Rails 7. And I made the call to to try and use import maps because it was something that I wanted to get to. This app didn't have Webpacker and I've upgraded multiple apps to Webpacker and there's there's a journey there, right? You got to convert all your old globally available JavaScript to uh, a more modular uh, path. And a lot of people are not prepared to do it. This particular app wasn't prepared to do it. And I was like, maybe import maps can really solve this problem for me. It looked like it would. And and I'm very happy to say it totally did. And it was awesome. And I used that. Yeah, I, I got I got it working with sprockets and, and import maps. And I felt like maybe some of the documentation was a little weak on how to do that. But I got it done. And at some point, I'll like, when I'm ready, I'll like, I think I need to write about it because no one's written about it, or at least not together. But then then I at some point I had seen PropShaft and I was like, okay, I don't feel like PropShaft is ready yet. But then when you were planning to come on board, it was like right before I was about to do this. And I like had to reevaluate PropShaft again. And I was like, I don't think it's quite ready yet, but I'm really interested in hearing 
your take on where you feel it is for like the people that are sort of waiting in the wings with these legacy apps that have these long journeys and they're not ready to commit to modular JavaScript yet for whatever reason, like there's all sorts of reasons for that. And they're terrified of their journey because it's kind of terrifying to rewrite your, your entire JavaScript front end in a more modular way. How, how do you feel PropShop covers that right now? And like maybe what the path forward would be if it's not ready yet? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's one of those reasons why I haven't actually pushed PropShop that much. Because there's also just like, there's a limited amount of appetite that people have for new shit. And I kind of feel like we've stuffed that appetite full with Rails 7. There was just so much new stuff when it came to the front end that PropShaft was was one of those kind of additional jumps, but you didn't need to do it, right? So if you were already embedded with, with Sprockets, perhaps because you're still using CoffeeScript. So that's a, a great case, actually, because a Basecamp, until actually, I think yesterday, we just merged our decaffeination branch that some of Basecamp have been working on. Um, but we still have CoffeeScript in there. And CoffeeScript just needed a transpiler and Sprockets had one by default. So getting out from, from Sprockets, there's all sorts of reasons why you are you can't be married to, to Sprockets for, for a certain app, right? It's using features that PropShift just doesn't have. Sometimes you can just replace those things if you're already on Webpacker and you move to JS Bundling. I mean, you've already done the bulk of the work. But if you're not, if you're, as you say, you're still on a set of JavaScripts that were written with Sprockets bundling syntax and it's global and maybe there's some jQuery in there. And again, that's basically the Basecamp story. So Basecamp, the, the current version of Basecamp we were running was first started in 2012. That's like a long time ago. And at that time, jQuery was still the shit and CoffeeScript was awesome and all these other things. And by the time we started working with Webpacker, we also looked at that body of work and went like, you know what? I'm not going to rewrite all this. I'm just, we're not, or at least not right now. But I think that's the neat thing about the front end is you kind of, in certain apps, don't have to. So what we did at Basecamp was we basically said, we have all this legacy CoffeeScript, jQuery powered JavaScript. We're going to continue to serve that as is. And everything new, we start on <coughs> what was then Webpacker and then became JS bundling. We actually, with Basecamp, made quite quickly the transition from, from Webpacker to JS bundling. So I kind of have like, I have both tracks. With Basecamp, we're running JS bundling, we're running CSS bundling style development because it had these legacy concerns. And then with Hey, I get to go full default vanilla Rails 7 because it was written with Hotwire from the beginning. I mean, it basically was the birthplace of Hotwire because that's where we pioneered all the techniques. So I think you need to look at that process and, and think, do you know what? Sometimes I'll just do the new stuff the new way. And then I'll do the old stuff the old way. Where does PropChef fit into that? It fits into that in the sense that like by the time you kind of get to, you no longer, for example, you've gotten out of CoffeeScript, let's say that, right? Okay, checkbox. You, you still have some some JavaScript that's written for jQuery, whatever, maybe you're able to convert that to, to, to another form of using it, or you can just transpile it once and for all, or do something else where it ends up as a single package. Boom, maybe now you're ready to, to move to PropChef. But if that's not the case, whatever, it's fine. I mean, yeah, I, I just, 
sort of went through all the reasons why aesthetically I'm offended by sprockets because it's this rusty collection of tools, but it also totally works. Like, I mean, except for when it doesn't, which is, of course, always the problem, right? Like there, there are actually issues on the sprockets, a GitHub repo that aren't sort of being addressed in a timely manner. But for most people, most of the time, the value of having something that's been around for so long is that most of the corners have been sort of ironed out. So I, I feel actually okay saying that prop shaft in the most cases is mainly for apps that are already on the modern JavaScript train has a straight path to getting there and that we'll we'll be living with sprockets for a very long time which is also why I built the whole thing up and Rails 7 ships with this Rails 7 can use either you can do Rails new my app dash a prop shaft boom you'll get configured for prop shaft or if you don't do that you get configured for uh, for uh, sprockets by default prop shaft is meant to be 90% a drop in replacement for sprockets for apps that conform to these modern approaches of building the the assets and if if you're not there yet don't don't sweat it i mean i think you always have to sort of have a sense of is it worth to migrate something that was written a long time ago to the latest we still run we run three versions of basecamp we run a modern version of basecamp that is sort of we're pushing to adopt all the latest tooling but we run basecamp 2 we run basecamp 1 Neither of those two apps will ever get upgraded to Hotwire. They will never get upgraded to Prop Shaft. They'll never get upgraded to any of that stuff because we just they're not in active development. They're just sort of in maintenance mode for security fixes and so forth. So I think that's like a, one of those evergreen questions of like how much should you stress out about whether you're on the latest stuff. I think if you're working on an app that's in active development and like it's an ongoing concern, not sort of just active development as in like a little tweets here and there, I think you should sort of always be working on making the campsite in better conditions. You don't just stop everything for six, nine, 12 months and go like, okay, we're just going to redo the whole thing. There are very, very few apps that can afford or are willing to do that. But like you can make steps along the way. Like with Basecamp, we just decaffeinated Basecamp. I mean, we haven't written new CoffeeScript in, I don't know, six years, seven years. But that's how long it took before we decaffeinated all the old CoffeeScript. So I think part of this is to build a Rails that if someone picks it today to start a new application or to even learn it, they get a great package for today, right? They get our best thinking. They get our best solutions for today. They are not paying a legacy price for the fact that a framework has been around for 20 years. And that is a difficult balance because, I mean, there's value in stability. There's value in continuity. But if you go too far over in that corner, you also get stagnation. So I, I kind of feel like we need to be able to straddle both if we are to have a, a successful, long-term, viable framework that someone who has no investment in the legacy world and history of Rails decides to move in today. They have to feel like, hey, this is great today. No buts, no ifs, no whatevers. It's just a great setup today. And yeah, that that has compromises, it has trade-offs. I think, I mean, to me, Webpacker was the greatest of all the trade-offs. I mean, I knew when we made Webpacker that this was a compromised answer. I wish I had a better answer at the time, but there wasn't a better answer at the time. I think in hindsight, I'm, I'm still very happy 
for Webpacker and what it brought us in April to do for the years that it was needed. But I'm even happier that we don't need it anymore. And that's the other thing of, of sort of if, if you're interested in being around for 10, 20, that's how many we've been around now, 30, 40, 50 years, I don't want to live in a museum, right? We got to move with, with the times. And we got to do it in a, in a careful, reasonable, considered way. But there's no careful, reasonable, considered way that's like going to be ideal for everyone all the time. So that's, that's the interesting part of it. You know, I mean, development would be boring if everything was obvious and all trade-offs were clear and straightforward. It, it's interesting. It's motivating because it requires these diligent weighings of like what's worth it when and so forth. But the fact that we can do these things, I think another example of this is site work. So the work with site work tackled sort of one of those root causes of weird edge casey bugs in Rails that like you normally never hit, but if you do suddenly it's like, what the F? And fixing that from the root is the kind of sort of core work where you don't let your, your bridges and your roads just crumble, right? You're like, no, 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 we're going to fix this bridge here. Like, it's not going to fall down tomorrow, but like, you know what? This bridge does not have a long-term future. We're going to fix it, even if it's going to be a little bit of a of a hassle and some delays and and whatever. We're going to like it on the other side. So I really, I, I want us as, as Rails builders to continue to have that ambition that like, we're not, we're not stuck in the past. We're willing to rebuild the roads. We're willing to rebuild the uh, bridges and willing to take the mess and the dust that comes from that because we have a long perspective. We're, we've been here for 20 years. So the odds are that in 20 years, there'll still be people making rail stuff. Mm. I, I kind of want to redirect us back to like what this actually looks like practically, right? So, you know, we're talking about prop shaft and we're talking about maybe putting it in Rails 7 or Rails 8. So if I go ahead and I start a new project and I'm going to be putting my uh, CSS and JavaScript assets in, how does that work? Because you talked about getting rid of Node, right? Which means getting rid of NPM, which doesn't hurt my feelings all that much, to be honest. But yeah, so am I just downloading libraries and sticking them in a folder like we used to do with Sprockets? <coughs> or some of the directions for some of these libraries is NPM install it? I mean, what, what are we looking at there? And then what's the process of getting those things onto the front end of my application? you know, be it jQuery or Hotwire or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think this is what I'm so proud about with Rails 7 is that those answers are already in. Rails 7 today, whether you use PropShaft or you don't, has an answer for how to build a modern web application that does not live in the forest by itself. That you actually have access to NPM and you can use it in two ways. You can either use NPM as a CDN. I actually find that fascinating. I find the whole CDN question fascinating. I don't I both find it fascinating why developers have this, they can't quite articulate why they don't like it, aversion to CDNs for some of these things, but it's real and it's there. And then at the same time, we also have a process with the um, import map sort of whole setup that relies mm -hmm. on a cloud service with JSPM to provide downloading and management of the files. Because this is the fun thing about NPM. What, what do you think NPM is? It's a fucking thing that pulls files off the internet and puts them on your mm -hmm. disk along with 10,000 other files because you get all the dependencies. It's basically the Gen 2 version of Linux as a 
approach to sort of uh, JavaScript development, right? Like, hey, let's just download all the source for all the uh, dependencies mm -hmm. and like all put them on your hard drive. And I'm like, I just wanted to use a library. Could, could I just use whatever, React, if that was the thing I wanted to mm -hmm. use? Could that just be a finally packed, it's one thing rather than 10,000 dependencies that I now have to listen to whenever NPM audit complains about a package JS thing that's just a development <laughs> dependency being out of date or, or some nonsense. So with Rails 7 today, there's already the straight path. You use the bin slash import map command and you say, I want to depend on this cookies.js uh, library because I'm using that for, for my stuff. You will either uh, depend on it as a CDN option or you will download it managed through this bin import map command to vendor slash JavaScript. And that's the approach we're using for Hey, and it works freaking great. And it means that we have all of NPM available without using Node, which is really a novel approach that I don't, that no other framework that I've looked at have been able to get there, that you're not cut off from the NPM world. That you get to use all of the stuff that's been created in JavaScript without running Node on your own machine. That JSPM essentially works as a cloud compiler. Uh, and there's many other uh, JavaScript CDNs. And they all work as cloud compilers. They all take, I want to use this one library, but I want to use it in a statically compiled way. So I download one freaking file to my, instead of the 10,000. And to me, that's such a nicer experience to, to deal with and to operate with. And because of import maps, because of the fact that we now have ESM and ES6 in the browser, that's all I'm serving. I, I get to set up the whole thing. I get to use the wealth of the JavaScript world without having to sort of store that entire world in my, in my closet. And I think that that's a huge win. And it's also then what paves the way for, for Sprocket, or sorry, for PropShaft because now there's no longer this requirement to do any transformation of the JavaScript. It's a file, you put it on the file system, the browser requests it, you serve the file. Nowhere along these steps does any translation, compilation, blah, blah, blah have to happen. The file you downloaded from the cloud compiler, that is JSPM or any of the other CDNs, is the file you serve directly to the browser. And what's so exciting about that is it has no compromises. You're not lacking in speed. You're not lacking in capabilities. You're not lacking in anything. Now, there's a few asterisks behind that. And there's a <laughs> few setups where if you're using Bootstrap, for example, anything that really has both a bunch of uh, CSS that mixes it in with JavaScript and so on, you can hit scenarios where you're like, okay, I actually do need Node because that's what I need. And I can't just... Right, you want tree shaking or something to clean stuff up, right? Tree shaking, in my opinion, is actually not really that great of a, of, of an answer because the <laughs> okay. tree shaking you get by by uh, import maps is is in many cases far better because it requires far less management and you can uh, select just the individual files you want to include when. For hey, for example, we use a a lazy loader for all the stimulus, so we get to tree shake every stimulus controller. And it does oh, not get you. loaded unless it shows up in the HTML on that specific screen, which is the sort of vintage tree shaking we would get from like, hey, mm -hmm. you have a thousand images in your app and like you have 300 pages and some pages use some images and some pages use other images and they just load when they're needed. The web is already tree shaken 
when it comes to these things of having small independent atomic assets like CSS, like style or like images and like JavaScript. So if you follow that path, the tree shaking advantages are in many ways not at all a win and they're much harder to administer. They're much harder to maintain. So now again, it's not in all cases and there can be cases where there are slight advantages and blah, 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 blah. But for the mass majority of applications, this is a better way to go. It's a more tree shoken or shook way of developing. It's an easier way. It feels more just like, oh, when I need a thing, I reference, or when I need an image, mm -hmm. I'll put in an image tag. You don't think about whether those images are pre-compiled or bundled or needs to be right. tree shaken or not. So it brings that sense um, of approach to assets to JavaScript, which to me is just magic. Hey folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I, I have to complain. I mean, when I started in tech like 20 years ago, one of the first things they taught me was to use tail and gref to find the problem on a server. And uh, I, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Um, I have to say Raygun kind of solves that problem for me and picks up all the stuff that really is relevant to the request or whatever that ha came in. Um, I'm curious, do you find that with kind of the oldsters like me, a common thing? or I think there's definitely better approaches to solving some of these problems now. You know, <laughs> I, I always used to think of logging. I heard this great analogy once. It was like, you know, logging tools are like coffins. Things go in there. They very rarely come out, you know. And you feel safe because it's there, but there's so much noise. Understanding what's mm -hmm. important and what's not takes a lot of effort. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, often I talk about Raygun's crash reporting product as being like a black box flight recorder. Like, just tell me when the plane blows up because I need to fix that really urgently, <laughs> you know. Um, and that's been hugely valuable. And you don't need to tail that. That's true. You know, folks, you should just go get Raygun and then you can see when stuff breaks, what matters. You can get it at raygun.com. They actually are doing a free trial, so go check it out. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Well, and I've seen some of these, like, uh, I've seen versions of Bootstrap where each of the components in Bootstrap, so the buttons or form elements or whatever, are all in their own files. And so, yeah, what you're talking about makes a lot of sense there because in a lot of the cases, what I've seen where tree shaking made sense was import all of Bootstrap and then have the compiler... Right pull out all the pieces yes. I'm not using. And in this case, what you're saying is, is, well, I only need the buttons and the form <laughs> elements and, you know, maybe a hero area and I don't need all of the other stuff. And so I'm just yeah. going to include the files that include them. And I don't, right. I'm not pulling in the whole thing. Yes, exactly. And, and I think it's know, just, for me, go ahead, I, I think I'm living in this world right now where I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay with Node because Node is solving my problem. I was okay with it in Webpacker and I'm loving it with ES Build. I haven't fully made that transition over to import maps yet. And I think a lot of this spawns because I have been doing Rails development for so long. And I think I still have PTSD from trying to get LibD8 and the Ruby Racer installed on my freaking computer. Yes. I mean, if I just delay a project for one month and come back to it after getting a new computer or whatever, nothing's going to work. LibD8 and the Ruby Racer are just going to be a complete headache. When you guys introduced Webpacker and Node, it was a beautiful thing. I didn't have to worry about that crap anymore. And now mm -hmm. with ES Build, I don't have to worry about some of the headaches that others have seen. I personally really haven't. It's worked really well for me, but I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing. So I'll probably eventually get over to the import map world. But for right now, I'm still in that bliss of Node because I still remember having to deal with the Ruby Racer. I think that that's... First of all, wonderful. 
What's interesting about it is that I, I hear two things from a lot of developers. I've heard a lot of developers who were deeply, deeply dismayed and, I mean, frankly, almost pissed off that we introduced the node complexity into the Rails world by default, that Webpacker cost them no end of grief. But then I've totally also heard your experience, right? Especially someone who's already sort of well enough versed in the JavaScript ecosystem that Node isn't this foreign universe. They've been living there with one leg for the last 10 years. It's natural. And I think that that's, I'm so thrilled that Rails 7 was able to bridge these things. We were able for the kind of people like you where Node is not a problem. Not only is it not a problem, it's like a feature. It's not a bug, right? You get a better path that's more nodey. It's closer to the regular node world as if you had done just a JavaScript project. And that so we improve that. And then on the other side, we also deliver to the kind of people who really hated Webpacker, and there were quite a few, an experience that completely is free of that. Like they get to almost rewind the clock to like 2008. And like, yeah, I, I just don't have to learn that stuff. I don't have to know about it. The import maps, I just need Hotwire, for example, right? A lot of apps can more or less be developed with Hotwire plus five dependencies from NPM, right? They don't need these massive structures because they're not, for example, made as, as entirely React uh, or otherwise spa apps that generally do tend to have kind of a lot of, of, of JavaScript in them. And we got both things. Which is, is I mean, I would have been thrilled if we had just solved one of these issues, right? But uh, it, it was funny how one ended up kind of almost helping the other. And, and, and here we are with these two wonderful paths. But it's funny because you, you mentioned coming back to a project and then you can't get it to work. That's actually kind of the experiment I had. A little, or that was the catalyst for me to get started on the import map. I got back to Basecamp, which was running on Webpacker. And I needed to copy some JavaScript from Basecamp to Hey. I wanted to use something we were using in, in Basecamp in Hey. And for the life of me, I could not get it to work. And I was just like, I freaking built Webpacker. If I cannot even understand how the monster works anymore when I've been away from it for like four months, there's something here that's going to cause grief for a lot of other people. Again, there are people who just totally sail on it and it just works and it, it's great. But I felt the pain myself to the point where like, this is not reasonable. It is not reasonable that I feel freaking like I, I can't do what I need to, to do because, because Node. And it, I mean, when I say Node, it's kind of an inclusive term for the whole world of the JavaScript ecosystem. It's the bundling, it's the Webpack, it's the Webpack configs, it's the Webpack dev server, it's the Webpack everything that, that I kind of lumped together as this Node sort of monster. But getting out of that, and, and getting to this place with, with Import Map and Rails 7 and now living it for months with Hey, holy shit. It's like just clouds departed and like, it's good. Now, again, I live on both sides, right? So I, I get to taste both of them. We have Hey, it runs the fully uh, prop shaft, Import Map, the works. And then we have Basecamp that runs Sprockets, JS bundling with ES build and all that stuff. And like, it's not like the, the, the Basecamp thing is, is awful. But the thing that sort of get my intellectual juices going is this sort of world that like we can give you all the power with none of the, I was about to say responsibility, with none of the draw, right? Like it feels like one of those M1 things where you see the graph, oh, this much power for like a third of the energy. And that just feels like 
the kind of leaps, you don't, we don't get that very often. Like I think back through the history of 20 years of web development, and I'm failing actually to remember the last time where all these things we just talked about, ES6, ESM, and HTTP2, were, were such consequential advances come together at the same time to fundamentally change how we can approach web development. I think the last time I felt as big of a shift was literally 2006 and discovering REST, like discovering REST principles and Roy Fields' mm -hmm. um, dissertation and starting to think in verbs. And like that really changed how I approached web development. There was like a clear before and after REST. And here it feels like there's a clear before and after in a way that you almost have to go back 15 years to find. Cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. So if someone has adopted ESBuild, they are on the latest and greatest everything, and they chose to go the ESBuild route simply because it is easier to get your Rails application up to date going from Webpacker to ESBuild than Webpacker to import maps. Would you say that import maps would be the next step in that evolution for a existing project? Or if they're happy on ES build, then that's where things should be left. I mainly make software to people who are, or I advance or advocate software to people who are unhappy with what they have. If you're happy with what you have, what the hell? Everything is great. As, as you said, there are people who are still happy with Webpacker. And there's someone in the community that also continues that line of development. So, hey, more power to you. I think when I converted Hey from, from Webpacker, to import maps, it was actually no more difficult than converting Basecamp from Webpacker to ESBuild. So for some types of applications that are written in a very modern style with, without all of these things, it's actually not a lot more difficult. But there are sometimes you have dependencies. Maybe you use Bootstrap or you use other things that's a little more awkward to use in with the import map. And then you go like, hey, ESBuild is great. I mean, that's the other thing I'm really happy about is that Webpacker used, well, Webpack, right? And Webpack served us well for many years, and I'm eternally grateful for all the work that went into that. But it's not exactly a simple, easy system to use these days. ESBuild, to me, represents a similar leap to some extent within the JavaScript bundling universe, where like there's one executable, it already knows uh, JSX, it already knows all the things that you're likely to use. It... By default, actually not even by default, it doesn't have a config file. I mean, that's amazing. Like you've chosen to build this whole thing that everyone's shifting to and there's not even a config file. There's an API you can build your own node application around, but like out of the box, you actually don't even need a config file. You just need some command line options. So ESBuild, I, I think in itself is really a, a monumental achievement, not just in terms of simplification, but also in terms of speed. ESBuild is just incredibly fast. So I think if you're happy with ES build, if you're happy with that whole setup, then I'm happy. This is why we have these multiple paths. And there's no, it's not a transition path either, right? I think there's no way that we're going to get all applications of all kinds and shapes and sizes onto import maps. I would like to see import map be the default for new apps. If you're starting from scratch, you should start on import map. And then if you hit something where like, okay, I just can't do that on Empowered Map. It's a short jump. It's not like you draw yourself into a blind alley. It's very 
easy, actually, and we should make it even easier. I think you could possibly even automate this of switching back and forth between import maps and uh, something like ESBuild because it's using the same ESM modeling system, right? It's using the same import statements. It's using all the same thing. There's a little bit of difference as to whether you're reference bare identifiers or, or file-specific identifiers and so forth. But it's not a big hop. Um, in fact, I did a spike on Hey after it import or, or converted to import maps. Like, what would it take to turn it over to ES Build? And I think I got like 90% of the way in like half a day. It's not these separate universes. They're actually based on the same principles, the same ideas. So I like that aspect of it too, right? Like we're not going in these opposite directions. We're actually leaning on the same set of advances. We're using ES6 in both camps. We're using ESM in both camps. There's a little bit of dialect difference, but whatever, it's cool. I've spent a lot of time really making sure that that JS bundling path and the ES build path is solid. It's what we use in Basecamp. Basecamp does not have a short path to import maps. Actually, mainly because of these legacy concerns and the jQuery, JavaScript, and so on, we're not going to rewrite. And so this is the other thing. I, I like to work on things I have to work on because otherwise I, I tend to fall into this hole of if I'm not working on myself solving my own problems, my motivation can, can dip. I need both of these paths. I need the ES build path for Basecamp. I need the import map case for hey. So I feel highly confident that like in two years, we're still going to have the stamina to move forward with it. And I also see it in the community. As you say, Dave, there's a bunch of people who go like, hey, ES build is fucking amazing. This is, I love using ES build. Woo! Clap. Ace. Ace. Top, top dollar. And then there are people who are like, oh, import maps is the greatest thing ever. Part of this thing is we built a tent that's big enough that we can disagree on certain parts of the stack and then appreciate and collaborate on all the other parts we share, right? So for for whether you use import map or you use ES build, you still use active record, you still use all these other things. And, and I think that that's sort of a place where Rails has tried to sneak its way where we get to be have a very wide tent while still having a clear path, right? So this is also why, at least from my perspective, import map is the default. We don't ask you up front, do you want this, do you want that? If you know, you can tailor it up front, and that's great. But if you're just like, hey, I'm new, I'd like to learn Rails, what's the easiest way for me to learn Rails and start being productive and build a real app? Okay, follow import maps. If along the way you realize, I can't, hey, here's a wonderful alternative route. It's called ES Build. There's a bunch of people using it. You'll have a great time. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm just looking forward to the days where I get push Heroku Master and not have to worry about pre-compiling assets blowing up in my face. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of inform new information here, right? Like, I think that's one of the biggest gripes that I've heard about all of this new stuff is just that it's a lot of new stuff. Right. Yes. And uh, while there, I mean, to me, in my mind, this kind of goes along with the Rails way of it being modular, though, right? Like, you don't have to use everything that comes with Rails. And I, I personally love that. I go through and strip out half the stuff that I'm not using. So you know, a lot of the times, uh, and, you know, <laughs> why, why shouldn't we be doing that with our front end, too? Right. And so to me, it makes a lot of sense. But Sprockets got really complicated, as as you have mentioned, and this was kind of focusing on simplicity, and it is focusing on very specific things. How are you 
going to be balancing that simplicity as PropShaft kind of gets adopted by some of these bigger companies like one where I work at, at Doximity or GitHub or, you know, Shopify for that matter. What are some kind of plans to keep that tight? I think there's some structural defenses here because there's some structural changes in what we need that are not going to come back. No one is going to ask for PropShaft to do source mapping. That's just not a thing. You get your source maps if that's what you want through ESBuild or some other compiler transpiler. There are better tools that I think there just won't be the demand for. And that's that's the reason why Sprockets kind of fell by the wayside on a lot of these features is that like no one were using them anymore because they just weren't the best or they were kind of creaky or they were a patchy version of something that existed in a better form somewhere else. So I think this is, um, PropShaft is going to grow, right? In many, I mean, when I introduced Rails, one of the highlight features I, I told everyone about at the time was like, it's a thousand lines of code. You can read it in like a long afternoon. You can understand all of Rails on day one, right? Well, Rails is no longer a thousand lines of code. It's I don't even know how many thousand lines of code is, but it's a lot of lo- thousand kinds of lo- of code. I don't even under I, I haven't even read everything in in a very long time. Sprocket or, or PropShaft is naturally going to accumulate more bulk as it addresses more of the edge cases around the problems it has set out to solve. And I think that's really a distinguishing feature. PropChef sets out to solve a small number of problems. It needs to solve them well. It needs to cover all the edge cases. And to cover edge cases, you need to accumulate more code. But there's still a structural difference between trying to solve three problems versus trying to solve 15. So I feel good about that. But even if, let's say in 10 years, PropChef is now as full of cruft as Sprockets is today, it's still better. Because now you only have 10 years of cruft, not 20 years of cruft. Right. So there's 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 value in and of itself to ripping off a clean sheet of paper occasionally and going like, you know what, let's rethink this from first principles. What do we need? And then you write it again. Uh, Now, some libraries are not like that. Active record is a great example. I would not wish it upon. I was about to say my worst enemy to rewrite active record because active record has literally 20 years of refinement and edge case polishing by thousands, and that's not even a sort of a metaphor, that's just fact, thousands of contributors who've used this in millions of apps. Active Record is very, very good. It also has some cruft, but the proportion is very different because the problem we're trying to solve with Active Record today is exactly the same problem I was trying to solve in 2003. So for Active Record, for example, to no longer be relevant, we would have to say relational databases are no longer relevant. That can happen, right? Like for a while, people thought that MongoDB and structure or schema list and whatever, that was going to be sort of everything was going to be written like that. And then they lost all their data and then they got to a better conclusion, sort of joke, don't shoot. That the the sort of sometimes there's a challenge, right? A technical challenge and people go like, are, are relational databases outdated? And then for a while, we debate back and forth and people try alternatives. And I think now the verdict is back. Uh, no, they're not. Relational databases are freaking awesome. And they should be the sort of cornerstone of the majority of web apps because the majority of web apps are still CRUD machines in much the same way that they were 20 years ago, 40 years ago, right? Their relational database is one of those sort of 
structural cores of, of all the work that we do. So the 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 solutions to how do you talk to a, a relational database through an object-oriented programming language is the same problem. And there you have an accumulating effect where the longer you work on that problem, the better it becomes, right? Now, it is technically possible that someone has a conceptual breakthrough that completely alters how you should be talking to a database and that could change things. I haven't I haven't seen one and I've looked at I've looked at everything. And in 20 years, we haven't had it. So that's where it's different, right? Like the as long as the ground is stable, you get value by keep building on top of it. As soon as the ground shifts, as it did with HTTP2, with ESM, with ES6, and then suddenly it's a new world, you need to build new structures. Yeah, I just want to add also that Hotwire has been the best thing I've added into my applications. Applications have upgraded. I had so many different custom action cable channels that would pub sub and I mean it worked sort of I mean you know I'm not yeah. the best at JavaScript it sort of worked but then when I switch over to Hotwire everything worked without having to touch the JavaScript it was awesome the transition from UJS to Turbo like the Turbo Link slash UJS to Turbo that was probably the biggest pain I've had to experience in a while and it wasn't hard it was just a lot of work it was a lot of work to just get rid of all those UJSs and move over to Turbo. But in the long run, it was worth it. Everything is so much cleaner and it's so much better. It, I'm, I mean, I kind of feel like uh, some of the fundamental advances we've made with Turbo in particular, we still don't fully understand. I don't think we fully come to grip. Like, what can you do with streams? What can you do with frames? How little JavaScript can you get away with? We had exactly the same case in Hey. Hey, at one point, I think it had five or six action cable channels. Today, zero, zero custom action cable channels in Hey. Everything is built on top of turbo streams. So the one channel and that's it. That's the kind of simplification where you just go like, okay, this is a generational change. This is a mind shift change in terms of what you can build with like blocks that are like big enough that you don't have to stick them and, and, and fumble with them. You just click them in. You're like, okay, a frame. Boom, a drive thing, boom, a stream thing, boom. And you go like, holy crap, I've just built like incredibly sophisticated high fidelity app and where's all the JavaScript? And again, the proof is in the pudding. Hey, is an email client. Like it is literally the prototypical thing that people would point to that needs to be a single page application. They'd go like, well, Gmail, look at Gmail. And I looked at Gmail, Gmail has I think 4.6 or 4.8 megabytes of compressed JavaScript that it sends down the pipe <laughs> to render the inbox, right? You're like, that's like 20 megabytes of uncompressed JavaScript. That's like, I don't know, 100 people years worth of effort to, to build up all that. Hey, when we launched, I forget what it is exactly now, but when we launched, I think it was 38 kilobytes. We're solving the same problem now. There are some people who are very versed or invested in Spa who goes like, well, that thing is not as slick or that thing is not as fast. But we signed up tens of thousands of paying customers who went, this is amazing. And you're like, with 38 kilobytes of custom JavaScript, that's it. Everything else was turbo frames, turbo streams, vanilla HTML over the wire. That is a sea change in terms of like what's possible with, with less. And I think that's the other thing that I keep coming back to. One of my sort of endearing goals and North Stars is this concept of the one-person framework that I want Rails with everything that it has 
to allow one person to be competitive. One person should be able to build a competitive web app that a user will sign up for and go like, this is great. What, did it, does this take 50 people to build? And you go like, nope, just the one. And we need this conceptual compression to be able to allow that. You can't just keep adding new things and more things to learn because it becomes impossible for a single individual to wield it all. And this is how we ended up with all this over-specialization, in my opinion, in the industry. Well, I'm a front-end translation built setup expert. Okay. I'm sure that is a role that is appropriate at a company with 10,000 developers. It is not, we should not have that big of a body of knowledge that's required for an individual who just wants to make a cool web app, right? That should not be required. It cannot be a gate that you have to be an expert in 5,000 different things that are individual professions for you to be able to make great web apps. Then we've truly regressed as an industry. Because I mean, remember how much stuff was created by, if not literally one person, than two people or three people. Like how many things were started in, in sort of the early days with tiny, tiny teams. And now we've gotten to a place where you talk to startups, you're like, well, I need 12, 15 engineers. I mean, that, that's gotta be just a baseline because I mean, we need the thing, we need the thing, and we need the thing. And you know, I wanna be on the opposite side of that, that we empower individuals. Because if you empower an individual, you also empower Shopify. That's the thing. It's a unidirectional empowerment. If you make something that is great, functional, easy to understand, easy to use for one person, it's also great, easy to understand and whatever for 4,000 people. If you make something that's suitable for 4,000 people, you're almost guaranteed that it's a total shit show for one person to try to figure out. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't concerns where Shopify have different challenges that they face at 4,000 developers than the one person developed. There absolutely is. But if you start from like the center of your focus on the single developer, I think you're so much more likely to end up with a framework that works for all. And I say that as someone, I've not worked on a single person app in a billion years. I work at a company that has uh, 20 plus developers working on, on our apps, right? But I always try to sort of keep it real. By Whenever we start something new, I do start as one person. Like we spin up, hey, hey for months was a one person app. And it, it started processing email and did a bunch of, and then of course we got more people on and, and whatever. But I think that is just a big difference. It really is. And it informs everything and how I think about how to build the framework and how to make it understandable and how to keep looking for these pockets of conceptual compression. That is also just the, the thing that gives me the kind of energy and excitement to write code after 20 years is like, can we find, can we find some more things I can compress? That would be that's just great. All right. I want to keep it real, David. Prop shaft. It's sprockets minus transpilation. It's sprockets minus bundling. It's sprockets minus minus. Am I right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. Um, <laughs> it doesn't add anything new. It, it is a tenth of what sprockets is. So it boils down. Right. It takes out of the 15 things that sprockets does. It says, we're just going to deal with three. And by dealing with only three and rewriting it from scratch, you get a code base that's perhaps one fiftieth the size and the complexity. I read the code. I also read the commit history, which is, again, as you say, very short. You put Brotley in and then took Brotley out. And that was a really interesting flip-flop. Why? Yes. What, yes. what changed your mind? It was so funny because Brotley was one of those things where like, okay, Brotley is the current modern way to compress textual assets. And now it's supported in all the browsers and this is what we should use. But it's also one of those things where like, just because we can doesn't mean we should. In fact, broadly, 
in terms of the compression, compression of assets is better done by the web browser or the CDN. This is not core to what PropShap needs to concern it well, even if it's easy. You saw when I pulled it out, I only deleted maybe five lines, six lines. It was actually not a lot, but that goes with sort of drawing those conceptual boundaries. What problems does this component solve? And broadly compression, for example, is better solved. First of all, you get it solved for free by your CDN. And if you're not using a CDN, broadly is not your concern, right? Like you, you don't actually have a problem. If you're not at the stage yet where you're using a CDN for your assets, it doesn't really matter how big your assets are because your app is a small app you're distributing between your friends and 50 other people, right? The CDN happens quite quickly in the history and advancement of a new app. We should not be duplicating the features of, of the CDN. And even if you're not using a CDN, if you're using Nginx or anything else like that, it's got the compression approach built in. And that wasn't true. Sprockets had compressors built in because back then that was not true. CDNs were not standard for every single app. The, the web server did not necessarily have all the compressions easily configured. The world is different. Program for today, not for 10 years ago. I've got a couple more right. quick things. Firstly, no, I don't know if we have time. Has, <laughs> uh, you might have to cut it out. Rails currently has more active pipelines than the continental United States. And uh, secondly, Rails 8, Rails 9, Rails, Rails 10. When you get to Rails 10, are you going to do what Microsoft and Apple did and keep it at Rails 10 for years and years and years so it makes you feel younger than you are? Well, I think in terms of the pipelines is, is sometimes it's a time of expansion. If I look at the JavaScript ecosystem, why did it get so complicated? Because it was, it was a renaissance. Like we were trying all sorts of new things. We were discovering new frontiers. All sorts of new advances were being made. That was a time of expansion. Now we reached the point where like, okay, ES6 is good. ESM is good. Like the fundamentals are now solidified. Now you can compress. And there's a little bit of that in the, in the Rails approach to some of these things. There's this new frontier. There's these three new advances, HTTP2, ESM, and ES6. How do we best utilize those? What do we need to do to figure that out? And I think actually where we ended up, the path there was, was interesting. I shared more along the path of making Rails 7 than I usually do. Most people would, in previous years would more have just seen Rails 7 as like a final thing. I shared sort of like a behind the scenes, which meant that like I tried an experiment where like we had individual packages for ES build and web or Webpacker in new things and they also could sort of count as their own pipeline. So there was a lot of like, you're seeing how the sausage is made, the framework sausage is made. And I think for some people that was an interesting look and for other people, they felt like, oh, that's very confusing. So I think where we ended up, where we have three or, well, we have three, but two main paths, right? ES build or Webpack or Rollup, but ES build mainly or import map. Like, I don't want to compress that any further. As we just talked with Dave, like he's like, I love ES build. And I'm like, that's great. Let's, you should use that. And import map is a better default for, for most people who get started. So that's kind of like as, as low as we go. I don't want to compress that. Like, for example, if I, I showed up to Dave and said like, hey, Dave, it's, it's great you like ES build, but you got to use import maps. Uh, we're just dumping ES build and, and that's not going to be supported tomorrow. Hey, probably not going to be a happy camper, right? So you got to sort of weigh some of these things. Sometimes you have to give more choices and other times you have to collapse choices. And then in terms of versioning, the funny thing is since like Rails 1, I've always had this like, maybe we're done. Like 
maybe the next version we're done. Like we're we're finally there. There's not anything new frontiers of Saul. But I've I've finally knocked that out of my head because the environment is not done. As long as the web keeps evolving, as long as new protocols and approaches keep emerging, Rails has to respond. You look at so many of the things that Rails has done something about WebSockets, for example. That was not a feature, a thing in 2004. Now WebSockets is a thing. Rails should have an answer. Import maps used to not be a thing, right? Now it is a thing. Oh, there's some compression or some complexity available for compression. We should compress it. So I think a lot of what Rails continues to do is to react to its environment. And the environment is all of the web, right? Like, remember, Rails, at least when it came out, and I think still to a large extent, is is unique in just how ambitious it is. It wants to provide good answers to the whole problem of building modern web applications. That's a wide ass span, right? There's a lot of stuff in there and they're keep to some extent becoming more stuff. And then you also have the fact that people keep making new apps. Whenever I make a new app, I realize, oh, Rails doesn't do a thing that I would like it to do for this app. Other people make new apps. They realize, oh, Rails doesn't do the thing that I need for my new app. And we keep contributing these things back to the commons. So I think as long as we're building for the web and the web resembles the web in the same way a relational database still resembles a relational database, even though there's 20 years of advancement, right? Like Postgres 9 or whatever they're up to is not the same as Postgres 2 was. It's gained all sorts of capacities and capabilities. But as long as the fundamental problems remain, we will keep moving forward and making new versions of Rails. Awesome. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right, I'm going to push us to picks. I know some folks have uh, have to get off in 10 minutes or so. So uh, let's start with Dave. Dave, what are your picks? So in the spirit of Hotwire, one pick I'll you know, kind of self-promo is a episode I did on shopping carts with Turbo, where I built a full-fledged shopping cart experience without writing any JavaScript. It was amazing. And before doing something like that, with React or whatever, it would have just been a nightmare. So I am full on board the Hotwire train. And I think that's really the only pick I have. All right. Luke, what are your picks? In a shocking display of sucking up, I'm going to pick an episode from the season two of the Rework podcast, which is much better than season one. Season two is huge and improved. Everyone should upgrade to season two of the Rework podcast. And in particular, it's the build half a product, not a half-assed product. That's a good episode. All right. Valentino, what are your picks? Uh, So I have two picks here. My first pick is I came across a site that keeps track of a directory of of women that stream in tech. Since this uh, kind of women's month, I'm going to say, hey, check that out. I found a bunch of awesome 
women's streaming, programming, game development, a bunch of stuff. Definitely picked up a bunch of new followers. Uh, and my last one is I came across this awesome project called Pocket, Pocket AI. Uh, it's like a modular piece of hardware that you can just stick a bunch of tiles on and then they're magnetic and they click and they will all work together based on the board that they're on. It's really neat. And I'm hoping that I can get in on the uh, the early train because it, it just looks like so much fun. Nice. John, what are your picks? Okay. So because I did this great journey of upgrading an app like over the course of the last week, I have lots of things that I think are really exciting. But I'm going to try and like rush through like the highlights. So first of all, there's also like a little bit of a runner up because I totally used a couple of your videos this past week, Dave. So awesome job there. Thanks. Thanks for the work on getting uh, specifically getting uh, like turbo and stimulus. Yeah, well, it was really stimulus. But yeah, getting turbo stimulus stuff working with the new Rails 7 import map stuff. So that was awesome. But uh, we talked about uh, decaffeinating your JavaScript earlier. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, for those of you who are, that looks super terrifying, JS to coffee is amazing. It does not, it doesn't immediately solve your problem, but it really does take your coffee script and convert it into working JavaScript. That's your first step. And it gets you most of the way there. So for all of those who are still working on doing that, definitely do that. Import maps on Rails uh, completely delivers on its promise. That's, that's how I feel. It was, it literally, enabled me to mix modular JavaScript with the old non-modular global JavaScript, which is exactly what I wanted. It's, you know, for those of you who are trying to make that journey and you you felt like, well, if I switch to Webpacker, I have to make the entire journey in one go. And so I'm not ready to do that. Uh, you don't have to do that. You can mix and match. I like having my cake and eating it too. Import Maps lets you do that. You should do that. And then I had this one problem with, I, I think it's, I think people are working on fixing it. That was my kind of understanding. But like, I have a device app. I just installed Turbo on it. And I have like Hotwire Stimulus kind of going on. And there's some weird interactions there that cause your CRS or CSRF tokens to get like, or to not be understood. And so I, I linked to Chris Oliver's, uh, uh, one of his videos on GoRails that, that figured that problem out. And for my real pick today, I got back into my Glen Scotia 15, which is literally my still my favorite scotch. And it's, it's been like four years in. And so I'm recommending that. All right. All right. Let me throw out a couple of picks here. First of all, I always do a board game. The one I'm going to pick this week is Dice Forge. Dice Forge is the idea is you have dice that you can change the faces on. And the faces are kind of like the little flat Legos. I mean, they literally clip on the same way. And so you start out with your base dice. And then, you know, as you roll the dice, you get gold and other tokens that you can use to get cards or dice faces. And you just build up whoever has the most victory points wins. Have I picked Board Game Geek on here yet? I, I don't know if I'm getting some I don't know. So Dice you Forge. This dice game. Yeah. So Dice Forge is has a 1.96 weight on uh, Board Game Geek. And Board Game Geek gives complexity ratings on the different board games. They also have forums and stuff that allow you to kind of check out what's going on with a, a board game. So some of the other games that you're, you've you probably played, most of those clock in about a two. I think Settlers of Catan is around a two. 
Monopoly is around a two. So this is on par with, you know, games that most people have played. So anyway, really, really enjoyed it. It's got some fun mechanics to it that are a little bit different from anything else that I've really played. And so I'm going to pick it. And then in emailing back and forth with David to get him on the show to talk about Prop Shaft, we also set up a schedule in August. In August, we're going to do a, or I'm putting on a Rails Remote Conf, and uh, David's going to come do a town hall Q&A. And so um, if you're interested in that, you can go check it out, railsremoteconf.com. I've got the website almost up. It'll be up by the time this goes live. So anyway, if you're interested in that, you can definitely come check it out. It's going to be five days and you can either get the first three days or all five days, depending on what works for you. So anyway, I'm excited about that and excited to have David come answer some questions for some folks. David, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So let me start with a with a book that sort of sets up the problem and then part of the solution. There's a new book out called Social Warming, which covers this concept of the fact that social media has kind of taking a dark turn somewhere along the way and and is not necessarily making people happier, more content and cheerful in their life, uh, at least for a lot of people. I think that really helped frame kind of some of the things that I've been feeling around social media and where things have, have gone over the last few years. And then the solution, at least for me, is something called Mailbrew, mailbrew.com. It's an app that allows you to Pick things out of social media, maybe a few tweets from a a person you want to see, maybe some things from YouTube, maybe some things from, from a few RSS sites, and then it puts it into a personal newsletter for you that you get delivered to your inbox, which means that you can disconnect from all these social media platforms without feeling like you're a hermit living in the forest who's not at all in sync or in tune with what's going on in the world. And that has really helped me sort of just reduce my addiction to social media by 95 to 98%. And I am just ever so thrilled that now I'm consuming um, sort of the world through email rather than endless doom scrolling. And Mailbrew shot straight into Hayes the feed is is a really neat way of keeping up with the world. And uh, and social warming is a great sort of reminder of, of why you might want to do something like that. Cool. Speaking of social media and stuff, David, if people want to follow you, uh, what are the best places to do that? DHH.DK is my personal website. I link to everything there. The main place I write these days is on Hey World. It is world.hey.com slash DHH. I write now in, in long form, totally wonderful uh, experience. And I actually have pleasant interactions with people, believe it or not, just that reply to those emails. And then we trade emails back and forth. It's totally vintage. It's totally awesome. And it's a wonderful antidote to sort of the social media world. Nice. Well, thanks for coming and uh, talking through PropShaft with us. I'm super excited to go and and dive in a little deeper and see what it can do for me. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, till next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.